Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by our special guest speaker. I think I have the heart of the Lord this morning, though. Um, you received a snapshot of it with Pastor Brenda coming up and praying and declaring the word of the Lord. Um, I don't want to preach for a really long time this morning. I feel like God wants to do something spectacular here this morning. Um, it is my aim, it is my prayer that somehow together we can be transfigured into a, a different dimension this morning. If you have a pen and paper, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of what I want to talk to you guys about is Living in the Grown. Everyone say groan. Living in the Grown. If you have your Bibles, if you will go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he says this in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Everyone say sons. Notice it says that creation is not waiting for the son of God. It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Creation is groaning, waiting for us as the sons and daughters to take our place and come into maturity and become Jesus to the world around us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know, here's that word, that the whole creation groans and labors and birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan. So creation groans, and then it says we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So this text says that creation groans. We groan. And God groans. There's a whole lot of groaning happening in this chapter. Creation is waiting. That's groaning for you to take your place as sons and daughters. God is also groaning. He's crying out within us 
for us to take our place as full joint heirs of his kingdom. But there's a problem. It says we are groaning. Our flesh is groaning. It's crying out for this redemption, this adoption. That's the Greek word, weasthasia. It's the full placement as a son. How many of you guys have struggled with sickness in here? Raise your hand. How many of you guys have struggled with sickness in your families? How many of you guys have struggled with living in this tension between what the Word of God says is ours and then the reality of our experience, even when we have prayed, is saying something entirely different? I find myself living in this tension between what I know to be true in God's Word and then the life that I'm now living in the flesh. And, and it's frustrating. This is what Paul was speaking into. He's, he's trying to move into this place of, yes, God, His Word is true. Jesus, when He said, it is finished, it is finished, He became the curse. Isaiah, 750 years before the crucifixion, is peering in beyond the veil and he's seeing this reality of this flesh rent and this nail-tattered sun bleeding out, heaven becoming bankrupt for our healing. And he pins these famous words that says, by his stripes we are healed. And we pray these prayers and we declare these prayers, but yet we're living in this time, this groan of this tension. When I pray, it seems like nothing happens. Even this morning, I know that this is a woman of God. I know she's laid her hands on her husband multiple times, yet he has the flu. My father, he's dealt with neck issues, three surgeries for as long as I've been alive, and he's still in pain. And I know he is a teacher and a believer in the Word of God. And this text is giving us kind of a glimpse into how to find out the answer to the solution of what it means to be living in this groan. You ever struggled with laying hands on a child or going to a hospital room and knowing that Jesus can heal and then walking away feeling the discouragement of nothing happening when you pray? I've dealt with in pastoral ministry, praying for sons in the hospital, overdosing off heroin, really believing the word of the Lord, really believing in the charis, the grace of healing, really believing in the, the work of power in that situation, finding out that the next day they went into eternity. This is life. This is Real life, this is reality. It's painful. That's where God is groaning because he understands what it's like to live his life as one of us. Hebrews speaks into this. He says, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, one that has lived lived his life as one of us, one that has became like his brother in all things, 
So Jesus understands the groan. Jesus understands this tension of where we're living at. So the groans declare the tension between what Jesus did and what is. The groans declare the tension between what Jesus did and what is. But see, if you're like me, and you've ever had a sick child in your family, there's this subliminal lie that starts working in your inner world. I dealt with a sick child so much to the point that my wife did not know this until a couple years ago. I was teaching and I was talking about healing and I was testifying about my personal story of where this whole thing hit home, where my daughter had 105 going up to 106 temperature and she started seizing out right in front of me and she started having a seizure and her eyes rolled in the back of her head and, and in that moment, I covered her like this because I didn't know what was happening and I thought if my little girl dies, I'm going to be the one to cover her so my wife doesn't have to look upon her as she passes away. I've lived in this moment. And what's unfortunate is it's another thing laying hands on the sick at the altar of someone you don't know and watching them recover. I've seen hepatitis C healed. I've seen brain tumors healed. But then I go home to a sick daughter and I lay hands on my daughter and nothing happens. Why is that? Why is it we can get results, we can get fruit with praying for someone we don't know, but then we go to our house and we pray for someone we do know and then nothing happens? You see this tension we live in? It's really easy to pray for someone you don't know because we don't see their infirmity every day. And see, this is, the Lord is taught me going through this school of brokenness regarding healing a few things see every time we go home to a, t a sick parent or a sick child or a sick brother or sister or a close friend that is walking through cancer going through chemo or is dealing with this infirmity that just won't go away the more times our eyes see them in the flesh dealing with that sickness the more unbelief is generated in our soul. Because faith is what? The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith sees into the unseen realm. Faith taps into the unseen realm and faith declares a reality beyond what I see into a world that I can see. We walk by faith, not by sight. So. Whenever we have someone in front of us that's sick and it's like we're so accustomed to them being sick, there's a seed of unbelief that begins to be generated and then a culture of unbelief that fostered in our mind and then we begin to lose confidence in praying for them. That's why we can pray for someone at the altar and we can see them healed. But we go home and we pray for someone we love and we... 
have labored in prayer and we fasted in prayer and nothing happens. So when we pray, every time we believe for healing, we have to believe healing is absolute. Everyone say absolute. absolute. I'm giving you points because we're going to pull on heaven this morning. We're going to pull on heaven and we're going to call things that are not as though they were. And I'm going to tell you how the devil works is when you come up to a situation, when you come up to somebody that's sick, you come up to somebody that needs a miracle, if you don't believe that healing is absolute, then you're not to, you're, you are not going to declare healing confidently over that individual. And what the devil is going to do is he's going to tap into the last two or three occasions in your past of the people that you have prayed for that were not healed, and he's going to use all of those failures from the past regarding healing to cloud your present time. We all go through it. We hear the echo when we pray of, it didn't happen three years ago. It didn't happen six weeks ago. You pray three days ago and nothing happened. Why do you think that God's going to move today? But every time we pray for healing, we have to believe it's absolute. Every time we pray for healing, we have to believe it's absolute. And what's funny in scripture, did you know that Jesus never prayed for anyone to be made well? Did you know that? He spoke to it. He touched them. He declared words. Why? It's because he always knew it was his father's will to heal. He never had to consult with heaven regarding a situation at hand because he always knew it was his father's will to heal. So he touched them. He put mud on their eyes. He declared healing over their body. He sent the word and healed them because he always knew because he understood something about his father that his he knew his father as father before he knew him as God and when we know God as father what father is there in this room that wants your son or your daughter to be sick what father in here wants your son or your daughter to be sick you don't so the Father in heaven always wants you to be made well, but sometimes it doesn't happen. There's that tension. So when it doesn't happen, what do we do? This is what the Lord taught me. We can never allow an unanswered prayer to violate the reality of God's goodness. We can never allow an unanswered prayer to violate the reality of God's goodness. This is what the Lord taught me. Based upon how old you are, how many years you've walked on this planet, your mind has a filing cabinet. Everyone say filing cabinet. <laughs> the older you are, the longer that drawer of that filing cabinet comes out, right? And every time... When we pray, 
and nothing happens, or every time we pray about a situation and we know it's God's will for good to come out of this situation and it doesn't happen, we have to understand that there are files in our mind that we must label as mystery. In every single account, in every single situation that we've prayed for that does not come to pass, we need to put those situations in that file that says mystery and we need to close it. And on the outside of that file, this is practice it in your mind with a big black magic marker. You need to write God is always good and you need to close that thing and you don't need to pull it back out. This, this is what works. It's because I'm telling you, you'll come to situations in your present and in your future and the enemy, the accuser, that echoing voice will come in and it will try to get you to deny the goodness of God in the situation. And when you begin to deny the goodness of God in a situation, then you won't see prayers come to be answered because of the lack of confidence. So there is a file called mystery. And everything that you pray for that is unanswered, that does not mean it's not heard. It just means it could be unanswered. You put that in the file, you close it, God is good, and you close that thing. You don't put it back out. So never allow an unanswered prayer to violate the reality of God's goodness. Go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. This is the letter that John wrote to the seven churches. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, he's describing this throne. In chapter 4 verse 1, the Lord says, come up hither. And that's what my prayer is this morning, that we're going to be transfigured into a higher dimension. And he's seeing this picture of worship take place right beyond the veil. And in verse 4, he says, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Verse 5, this is what I want you to look at. And from the throne proceeding lightnings, everyone say lightnings. Lightning. Thunderings, say thunderings. Thundering. And voices, say voices. And seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What's interesting, go to Revelation chapter 8. He's seeing the same scene. But something different is happening in Revelation chapter 8. Stay with me, please. Verse 1. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints 
ascended before God from the angel's hand. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. Listen, he describes it. And there were noises, there were thunderings, there was lightnings, and there was a what? There was an earthquake. He's seeing the same scene, but yet the description is different in chapter 8 than it is in chapter 4. And the key is in verse 1, it says that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. When I read this, I started questioning how in the world could there be time in a timeless space? How could there be time recorded in an internal place outside of time? But in chapter 8, if you're reading it, you have to understand what's happening. The saints are praying. I'm going to say it again. The saints are praying. The saints' prayers are incense that go before the Father. Time intersects this eternal realm. The writer is not just giving you frivolous details to give you frivolous details. He's giving you a revelation of what happens in heaven when the church begins to pray. The reason why there's time in heaven is because this is where the earth meets heaven. We all know Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6 that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. But before heaven invades earth, earth has to invade heaven. Heaven is not going to invade earth if the church refuses to pray. Your situation is not going to change if you quit praying. Your situation is not going to change if you begin to doubt the goodness of God because you won't pray from a posture of rest and of confidence. But the writer in Revelation is saying there's something happening between two worlds. The church is rising up. They understand their identity as sons and daughters and they're declaring words of affirmation and healing back to the Father and there comes a time when the bowl begins to tip. So we have to pray until the bowl tips. We can't stop praying until the bowl tips. And see, this is where most of us quit. This is where most of us get tired and weary. We might quit on the 20th day, but thank God Daniel prayed and fasted until 21 days. You can't get tired and you can't get weary. You've got to keep offering up these prayers of sacrifice before the Lord because who knows, in five minutes the bowl might just tip on your situation. So we're living in this tension that Hebrews 6 says, we taste the powers of the age to come. We taste the powers of the age to come. Jesus hits on this reality in John chapter 4. He says the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth did you know that god and his kingdom are the only ones and the only forces 
that can be here and coming at the same time. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. We taste the powers of the age to come now and will fully be consummated in those powers later. And let me show you one more scripture that appeals to healing on earth now. So go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. And if the, if the altar workers and the prayer counselors and the pastors can come forward, and if Pastor Dan can take his spot behind the piano, I'm going to read something to you. This is Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. This is the same writer, John. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Listen, listen. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I want to read that again. The leaves of this tree, of this tree of life, was for the healing of the nations. Now let me ask you something. Why would a tree of life with healing for the nations be up in heaven where there is no one sick? Why would a tree of life for the healing for the nations, its leaves providing healing for the nations, why would it be in heaven, this utopian, perfect place where there is no one sick? You want to know why it's up there? It's because it's supposed to be accessed by Jesus' church now. Revelation 8, the bowl tips. There's an earthquake. We see that with Jesus on the cross. Crying out to his father, there being an earthquake. And in Revelation chapter 22, it's a picture of this tree. And its fruit had healing for the nations. My prayer this morning is that we would taste of the powers of the age to come. That God, as we begin to reach out our hands in oath and covenant to this kingdom, this world that's right beyond the grasp, that Jesus touches us and returns healing right back because he is a good, good father. He is one that always responds to his church. He is one that gives good gifts to those that ask him. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.